Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. This coming Thursday is the feast day of the entrance of the Mother of God into the temple. In our calendar, it's a holy day, and it is a recollection of the fact that the Mother of God comes into the temple of Jerusalem brought at a young age by her parents, Saints Joachim and Anna, in fulfillment of a vow. And she enters into the temple to be received by Zacharias the priest, her relative. And she walks right by the priest into the Holy of Holies, a place where only the high priest would go once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they were all amazed. And she spent her younger days being raised in the temple and fed by angels, growing in holiness. And so she brings with her into the temple the grace of the Holy Spirit, she who would become the living temple of the Savior. And there is a special hymn of preparation which I will recite for you and dedicate this session of the Institute to the Mother of God under the patronage of her presentation or entrance into the Holy Temple. The most pure and precious and bright bridal chamber, the virgin sacred treasury of the glory of God openly appears today in the temple of the Lord, bringing with her the grace of the all-Holy Spirit. Therefore the angels of God are singing, this is the heavenly tabernacle and glorious abode of the Most High. To the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Do we have a speaker? We have a speaker, don't we? Yes. I'm not speaking on the, on the apology today. I, it's been a while. Anyways, our speaker this evening, I hope he's in this room, our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from Catholic University of America in 1997. He writes and lectures on various topics including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. He will have copies here next week. He received his, um, his little business card for, for the blog he just started. You, you got copies of that? Yes? Well, if you didn't, you'll get it later. Check out the blog. It's got a lot of wonderful insights, and he's going to say a little bit more about that in just a minute. A third-order lay Dominican. He currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. He is an avid gardener and hunter and lives with his wife and six children, yes? That's correct. You never know with a man from Front Royal. I mean... Uh, Six children in the Shenandoah Valley. Dr. Cutterback has come to the Institute numerous times to speak on various philosophical topics, and we are glad to welcome him back and his lovely wife, Sophia. Where are you, Sophia? Stand up, Sophia, who's with us this evening. Say hello to Sophia. Please, please join me in welcoming Dr. John Cutterback. 
Well, it's, uh, it's good to be here once again. The deacon would certainly knows of what he speaks when he says of the families from Front Royal. Um, <laughs> talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Um, <clears throat> um, in case, yes, I've had six children for two years now. Um, actually, before that, we had five children for seven years, uh, four girls and one boy. And then by an angelic visit, we, uh, we were blessed with another boy, and we named him Raphael. And he was a... He, he was a late-breaking addition and an amazing, uh, amazing joy. Well, I, I don't know what the deacon puts in the tea that you all drink to get you to come out on a Sunday night uh, to, to talk about philosophy. I mean, this is, this is truly astounding. I'm honored again, and I'm, and I'm thrilled, and I'm extremely excited. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this pretty much any, uh, any time of day or night. Ask, ask my wife, ask my students. We have an amazing little text here before us. And so let me just tell you basically what's, what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. I am not going to give you a scholarly presentation on this dialogue when I refer to it as a dialogue, most of the works that Plato wrote are called dialogues because there is a dialogue going on in them. So this dialogue was, I'm just going to give you the, the basic facts. It's one of the most famous works in philosophy ever. A key piece philosophically for Western civilization. Uh, there's, there are some debated questions about it. Those are not really important for us. I'm going to tell you basically what we're going to take for granted, and then we're going to jump in, and we're going to, I hope we'll glean some things that you'll see are, are actually quite exciting. The big three names in philosophy back from Greece that you really want to remember in this order are Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. There we're moving from the 5th century B.C. into the 4th century B.C., which, as you know, means from the 400s, to the 300s BC in Athens. So Socrates, the character that we've read about, or if you haven't read it, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the overview of what's, what's going on. I'll, I'll cut you slack that I wouldn't for my students. Uh, the main character here, Socrates, is really called the, the father of philosophy. He did not write anything himself. Everything that we know about Socrates comes from others who have written about him, primarily Plato. So this is one of the dialogues written by Plato where Socrates is the main one speaking. So this is a particularly important one. This is basically a, a report of his trial, of the defense that he gave. Apologia basically is, is used to refer to an account that one gives in the defense of oneself. And in the Greek justice system, when you've been accused, after the accusation has been made, then you're able to speak in your defense. And by the way, a number of things of our own justice system come from this. So what this is, is a presentation of what Socrates would have said in his defense. Now, here's the thing, just you know, again, scholars will disagree exactly how accurate can we take it. It's written by Plato. So it was not written down exactly the time. How much has, has Plato taken some liberty? Is he giving us exactly what Socrates said? Honestly, I don't really care. It is such a masterpiece in itself that even in the worst case scenario, that's not exactly what Socrates did, and it's just what Plato wanted us to think Socrates did. In the worst case scenario, we can still learn a lot. 
but it was actually would have been published not that long after Socrates' death. This is 399 BC. I don't want to ruin the end of the story, but he is executed uh, not very long after this. So there would have been still actually many alive when Plato would have come out with this account. So if it had been completely other than what happened, that would not have gone over very well and it would have been pointed out. But there's not a tradition of don't believe Plato about what was said. Plato was there and if you've read it you'll see he just he indicates that by just noting at one point that he along with some other disciples of Socrates were in the crowd. There were many that supported Socrates very much. Not enough but in any case, Socrates and pardon me, Plato and others were there. I mentioned the big three, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. So just again, so you have that picture there. Socrates didn't write anything, but he went around teaching, and a bit of that is reported here. Plato wrote a lot. He started a school called the Academy, and Aristotle as a young man studied with Plato. So we have Plato being a student of Socrates, and then we end up having Aristotle being a student of Plato. And it's just one of the amazing things in the history of thought where, I mean, the, you won't find another three in succession like these three. Many have pointed out it's, just, it's an amazing gift of God's providence that these men did what they did. It's a great example of how a student can actually, when he is first a good student, can in fact surpass his master, and Aristotle himself, most hold, even surpassed Plato, though Plato is so utterly amazing. Our great theologian, the common doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, most relies on Aristotle, and he likes to use the term the philosopher when he refers to Aristotle. But just so you know, in thought, Aristotle is the grandson, as it were, of Socrates. In here, you're going to see Socrates in action as regards some very fundamental things. So let's go ahead and, and jump in. I'm just going to give you the, the, the overview of what happens, and for those of you who had a chance to read it, um, it will be a little bit of a review. Socrates has been accused of two things. The main two things he's been accused of are impiety and corrupting the youth. It's kind of interesting just to stop and think about for a moment. What if we were to try certain of our leaders today <laughs> on the charges of impiety and corrupting the youth? Isn't it interesting, despite the fact that we're going to see something rather tragic happen in Socrates' death, nonetheless, it's rather revelatory of Athens that you could have a very important man tried for impiety and corrupting of the youth. So what, whatever else is wrong and is going wrong here in how Socrates is being tried and what ends up happening to him, there's, there's something just worth noting about this rather amazing civilization that is ours that would take these things so seriously. All right, so before what we have read here, he, the accusation will have been made and the prosecution will have made its whole case. So the dialogue simply begins by Socrates jumping in and saying, okay, now I'm going to point out how the accusations that are made against me are false. The bottom line of his reasoning is really this. But at the heart of it is 
he makes an appeal to the oracle at Delphi. So anyone who has read great Greek literature, this will be familiar. The oracle at Delphi was where the god Apollo was supposed to have spoken regularly. As regards various questions that we brought up, you could come and there would be a woman who would sit in the particular spot there and you could pose a question and she goes into a kind of trance and then she ends up presenting and, and often it would be kind of short enigmatic things that were very much respected throughout Greece and this was over the course of centuries. So there's a very famous oracle that had been given at Delphi as regards Socrates and that was there is no man wiser than Socrates. So apparently the question had been posed, is any wiser than Socrates? And the oracle says, there is no man wiser than Socrates. So here in his defense, the main thing that Socrates appeals to, and of course it, it, it does very well as regards partially being a response to being charged of being impious, of not reverencing the gods, his main point is, I have spent my life trying to examine that oracle, that statement of the oracle, because I don't think I'm the wisest. And this, this, the, or, the oracle actually had, been, had come when he was young. And so he had spent the better part of his life going around saying, I was testing it by going to wise men, and I wanted to be able to show that the oracle was wrong. If it was, that would be the pious thing to do. So I wanted to try to find men who were wiser than myself. And so he would go around and he would question them. Well, that is actually part of what ends up getting him into a lot of trouble. As he notes, he made a lot of very powerful enemies. And if you've had occasion to read other dialogues, I'll just note one. One is called Euthyphro. Euthyphro was a very famous man. He was something of a theologian. And Socrates went and had this discussion with him. And basically what happens is Socrates treats him as someone who should have answers to the most important questions. In this case, the actual question was, what is piety? And Euthyphro thinks that he knows what the answer is. And Socrates simply has a discussion with him where it becomes very clear over the course of the dialogue that Socrates knows a lot more about piety than Euthyphro was. And Socrates actually, you can see in reading the dialogue, is trying to convey that to Euthyphro. And Euthyphro is not being a very good student. He's not liking this, his ignorance about what he was supposed to have known being shown up. And so that, that is an important part of the background as Socrates comes here to be giving his defense. What we need to understand is you might have been wondering, why is it that, that a man that is so obviously a man of character would not have more support? Well, an important part of seeing that is he has made some powerful enemies by going around and doing what actually is a key thing that he thought he needed to do for people. And I hope tonight, in some sense, he can do for us. So again, key to his defense is, I have been going around questioning people, testing their wisdom to see if they really are wise because the oracle had said that I am the wisest. Again, it has made him very unpopular, but he insists, I actually have been a great gift to the city because I have been going around being 
a gadfly, someone that nips at the great horse of the city to bring up things that otherwise would not be brought up, to make people ask questions that otherwise that they would not have asked. Now, an interesting part of his defense is that he makes clear what he would accept beforehand or not as regards any arrangements of whether they find him guilty, then how, might them, they sent, how they might sentence him or not. One thing that he makes clear from the start is, I will not agree if you come to me and say, okay, Socrates, we're going to say that though you're guilty of having done certain things wrong in the past, if you simply agree to stop doing these things that you've been doing, that have so upset people, if you come, Socrates says, and you offer me that, just, Socrates, stop. We understand that you thought that it was important that you do this, but we're going we're gonna to let you go if you're just willing to stop doing that. He says from the start, I will not accept that, for you need to understand that what I'm doing is a gift and is the right thing to do, and I am going to keep doing it. So go ahead and judge me based upon what I have been doing. Don't demand that I stop what I have been doing. I will not accept acquittal even in that way because I'm going to keep going around being this gadfly. Well, long and short of it, he is found guilty of impiety and corrupting the youth even though he gives some very good arguments that make his accusers clearly show up for what they are as men who really aren't in a position to make this kind of accusation, it's rather clear that he has powerful enemies and that that kind of carries the day. So the next thing that comes up then is the sentencing. And he's definitely not beyond irony. And there's a number of lines that you can't necessarily take at their face value. But nonetheless, he has this beautiful moment where the way that the sentencing worked was both sides would be allowed to make a suggestion. The prosecution would say, okay, now he's been found guilty. This is what we think ought to be done. And the defense would say, well, we think this is what the sentence ought to be. And then the jury, it's 500 people at this point, will choose between them. So when they, the prosecution asks for death, Socrates says, all right, well, let me tell you. Again, I will not accept exile. We don't have to go into the details of it. But basically, to be exiled would have been, again, saying, Fundamentally, he can't, among his own people, do these things that he has been doing. And he says, I'll be honest. You might think I'm joking. What you have found me guilty of, what do I deserve for that? I deserve that you treat me like an Olympic hero and you give me free meals. <laughs> Permanently. For that is what they would do with Olympic heroes. They had a public place, cafeteria where the Olympic heroes would always be allowed to go and would be fed for the rest of their lives. So he said, honestly, the things that you have accused me of, this is what I deserve. So always a man to be straightforward and honest. This is truly what I deserve. He says, nonetheless, I know that you're not going to choose that. So he's, he's willing to put up. He doesn't think it's contrary to right character and justice. They say, I will accept paying a monetary penalty. But I will not accept exile, what you should have done is given me free meals, but I'll go ahead and suggest <laughs> I'll take a monetary penalty. Well, they go through all that, and he is sentenced to death. That's the basic 
storyline. There are some following dialogues that give the beautiful accounts of what happens afterwards. There's, there's a rather exciting one where there's a possibility of he could escape. Does he think it's right that he does that or not? And then we end up getting an account of his death also. But that's not part of our story for tonight. This is what I want to look at with you now. What can we learn from Socrates here? This is the way I invite you to look at the text with me. Socrates is the kind of man who had a good idea of what was going to happen. How primarily would he have constructed this whole speech? This is the first question I ask my students. What do you think he primarily had in mind as he planned out this whole speech? What did he want to most of all have happen? Do you think that he planned this speech around most of all trying to convince people that he was innocent? Was that his first concern? Did he set this up most of all to make the arguments that he thought would be most likely to get him off? And if we know Socrates, we know that's not what he did. So we naturally then ask ourselves, what was he doing? How was this whole argument constructed? What was he most of all looking to do? Well, this is the man, ladies and gentlemen, who coins the word philosophy. He coins the word. Philosophy literally means love of wisdom. And he spent his life doing that. As he said, when you love something, when you really love something, you pursue it. You pursue it in a way that is worthy of it. And that's what he has spent his life doing. He loves wisdom and he's pursued wisdom. So what would he most of all have been looking to convey in what was clearly kind of his last will and testament? His last opportunity to be in a public forum. Ladies and gentlemen, what we have in this dialogue is this remarkable man this man who somehow in God's providence had this amazing insight that there's this amazing thing called wisdom that's more important than anything else in life and is worth our wholehearted dedication to. I wish we could take, pardon me, take some time to point out how similar his language about wisdom is to the whole wisdom literature of Scripture. It's just astounding. In God's providence, by the light of natural reason, Socrates saw this. He has a sense of there's this transcendent wisdom that somehow is at the root of everything and the goal of everything. So what else would he do in this last opportunity to be, as it were, on the public stage than to try to teach us the couple most important things he thinks we need to know about wisdom. And I present for your consideration that's exactly what he does and that's what I'd like to try to see with you. So what I want to look at with you is what can we learn about what wisdom is and how to pursue it. That's going to be what we do today. Just so you can plan ahead for next time in part two we're going to see more concretely what his wisdom is and some of the amazing things that he has to say especially about the topic of virtue. But that's looking at what his wisdom is. First, we just need to understand what he means in general by this wisdom 
in how we might pursue it. So I'd like you to look at the text with me. And so our first big question is, what does he say about wisdom? What he says about wisdom is actually rather surprising. And I think that you will agree with me that it's not, given the things that I just said to you, what you would have expected him to say. So I'm, I'm going to refer to a couple points in the text, and just you know the way that we refer to texts in Plato is by using those marginal numbers and then letters. Now, you all have the same text, I believe, that I do. So right now I'm on page 27, and I'm going to refer to a text by calling it 21D. Do you see how on page 27... There's the, the 21 is towards the top, and so when I say 21D, we're about two-thirds of the way down on page 27. Is that everyone okay on that? We're good. All right. Here you're going to see him refer to wisdom. I'm going to go ahead and start at the, at, at the beginning of that paragraph, and we're moving towards 21D. So I'm actually going to start 21B. Consider that I tell you this because I would inform you about the origin of the slander. When I heard of this reply, and he's referring to what the Oracle of Delphi said, I asked myself, whatever does the God mean? What is his riddle? I am very conscious that I am not wise at all. What then does he mean by saying that I am the wisest? For surely he does not lie. It's not legitimate for him to do so. For a long time I was at a loss as to his meaning. Then I very reluctantly turned to some such investigation as this. I went to one of those reputed wise, thinking that there, if anywhere, I could refute the oracle and say to it, this man is wiser than I, but you said I was. This is what we talked about, right? This is, he's indicating this is what he's actually been doing for many, many years. Then when I examined this man, there's no need for me to tell you his name. He was one of our public men. My experience was something like this. I thought that he appeared wise to many people, and especially to himself, <laughs> but he was not. I then tried to show him that he thought himself wise, but that he was not. As a result, <laughs> surprise, surprise, he came to dislike me, <laughs> and so did many of the bystanders. So I withdrew and thought to myself, here's the key, I am wiser than this man. It is likely that neither of us knows anything worthwhile, but he thinks he knows something when he does not, whereas when I do not know, neither do I think I know. So I'm likely to be wiser than he to this small extent, that I do not think I know what I do not know. Now, this is a little puzzling, isn't it? There's one line in there that particularly strikes me. It is likely that neither of us knows anything worthwhile. It, it's, it's hard to know what to make of that, isn't it? But clearly, if we were to try to put into one statement what he pretty clearly just said wisdom is, what would that be? I'm going to let you formulate it in your own head right now. If you were to put into a statement... What is wisdom? According to what Socrates just said, what does it, what does it seem to be? The more you know, the more you don't know. 
I get what one gentleman has said, the more you know, the more you don't know. I certainly see where you're going. Is, is that the clear, what, give me a positive statement of what wisdom is. N knowing that you don't know, right? So, so it seems I would be wiser than he to this small extent. I do not think I know what I do not know. Let's look at one other text here. I'm going to turn over to the next page at the bottom of page 28. This is 23b, bottom of page 28, right before the b. So technically it's in 23a. What is probable, gentlemen, is that in fact the God is wise. When he refers to the God, he's referring to the God Apollo, who is the one who is supposed to be speaking at Delphi. In fact, the God is wise in that his oracular response meant that human wisdom is worth little or nothing. And that when you say this man Socrates, he's using my name as an example, as if he said, this man among you mortals is wisest who, like Socrates, understands that his wisdom is worthless. So we have now a couple of interesting statements from the father of philosophy. We, having, we have him stating that wisdom is worthless, and we have him stating to us that wisdom is to know just how little you know. Wisdom is to see very clearly how limited your knowledge is. So I'd like to go ahead here and cut to the chase, ladies and gentlemen, and, and ask you this. Do you think that we can and should take him at face value there? Is this our takeaway point? I mean, at this point, I, I, I say to my students, I mean, this, this is important. Where I'm teaching, we look at this text in the first semester of philosophy, where they're looking at another three years of this. <laughs> so I say, look, all right, here we are. We're just starting out. Do you think that what I and Socrates are going to say to you is this? Come along, be willing to work really hard, follow along with us, and if you're really, really good, then at the end, guess what? You too will know just how little you know. <laughs> and it will all have been worthwhile, right? <laughs> and by the way, that wisdom is worthless. But don't worry, we're going to work real hard to get it. <laughs> but this is what he says. So I, 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 I invite you, I'm not going to leave you in the pain. For my students, I leave them in the pain for a long time. <laughs> it's, it's important. If, if, if we could, I would. Nothing personal, but I would leave you in the pain because, I, well, I've learned that from Socrates. You're going to see that as we go here. But I, humor me, feel the pain with me for just a minute and ask what might be going on here? What might Socrates be thinking? This is the kind of thing that you have to do if we're really going to get inside a text and figure out what's going on. Socrates doesn't make anything easy for you. What's he doing to us? Is this what he wants to leave you with? And, and now I'm going to up the ante for you. Ladies and gentlemen, some people take that as his message. 
All across this nation, ladies and gentlemen, there actually are, at least scattered about still, people that read Plato, and they'll read this. What is the general view of Socrates? Well, I'll tell you a common one. They take that at face value. It fits actually rather well with a kind of chic aspect of modern philosophy. You can't really ever know anything for sure, but at least if you've thought things through carefully, you'll never make the mistake of thinking that you know something that you don't. And that's a very enviable position. So that's what Socrates is trying to teach you. You want to learn something from Socrates, realize it's much harder to come to ever know anything for sure than you think, and you're probably making a mistake if you think you know anything. <laughs> this is serious business, ladies and gentlemen. Because if that's what Socrates meant, philosophy is something very different than, well, St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, thought it was. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you don't have to take my word for it, but I'm going I'm to share with you what I think the situation is with Socrates and as we proceed today and next time. I hope that we'll be able to give you some basis to see that. Socrates, despite the words that he just said, does not think that wisdom, even human wisdom, not he used the word human wisdom, is worthless. We can talk a little more about that. I don't think he ultimately thinks that human wisdom is worthless. And I also don't think that he thinks that wisdom essentially consists in knowing what you don't know or knowing that you don't know. If we were spending more time on the text, what I would do to you right now is say, look through this text, and if you did read it carefully, you can even just start to answer this in your own mind right now. Show me something from the text. I'm not going to make you do it, but show me something from the text that gives the lie to that interpretation, that actually makes clear that Socrates absolutely does hold that there is a positive wisdom that there are wonderful, deep, glorious things that you can come to know and be sure of, and that at the end of the day, that, most of all, is wisdom. And that he thinks that, though he doesn't really say that. But in this text, it is very clear that he thinks that there are truths at the absolute center of human life, that can be known, deep truths that most people actually don't come to see and that you can come to know them and only if you do will you then really be wise. But he does not say that. Rather, what he says to you is wisdom is realizing just how little you know. So again now, I've asked you to kind of feel this pain. I'm going to ask the question again, and then I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is. Why has Socrates done this to us? Why is he conveying that wisdom would seem to be, making it sound as though wisdom is to know just how little you know? I'm just going to pause and let you think about that for 18 seconds. <laughs> I've got an interior clock. I'm not counting right now, but I'm, I never miss. Okay. Do, do you have a thought? Tell me. Without humility, you can 
very nice. This gentleman said, without humility, we cannot learn. And I'm not going to beat around the bush, sir. I think you have kind of lanced the heart of it. Well done. So let's just think about this a little bit. Socrates never uses the word humility. What if, ladies and gentlemen, what if in Socrates' whole life, he has noticed trying to be a teacher, and by the way, if you have the opportunity to see him in action, if anyone has the blessing of being a teacher, read some of the dialogues. Sometimes they're frustrating. Read the dialogues. Watch Socrates go. He is astounding as a teacher. This is a man who has, with love and passion, spent decades trying to help people see the most important things. And what has he seen? I'm convinced that after all that time, he saw again and again and again the same main hindrance to people becoming wise. And that is what is driving him in what I think can only be called hyperbolic, hyperbole. He is exaggerating when he says what he says here about human wisdom being worthless, about wisdom consisting in knowing that you don't know. But why is he doing it? Because he has seen, as a great master does, what the main thing is that's going to get in the way of bringing his students to where they need to be, and so he goes after it with a passion. And ladies and gentlemen, I would like to say to you, if right now you and I are thinking to ourselves, well, I'm glad I don't have that problem. And then I'd like to suggest we need a little more Socrates in our life. <laughs> we need to realize, what, what, what do we need to realize? Let's take a look here. I'm on page 28 again. Part of the beauty here is there are three main accusers, Miletus, Anitus, and Lycon. They represent different parts of society. And in the, in the whole defense here, he says how he has gone around speaking to the different parts of society, going to the craftsmen, going to the poets, and he, and he says what his experience is. And here's something that should give us pause because it takes us right to the heart of this matter. I'm at 22D in the middle of page 28. I am quoting. Finally, of course, Socrates speaking. Finally, I went to the craftsmen. For I was conscious of knowing practically nothing, and I knew that I would find that they had knowledge of many fine things. In this I was not mistaken. They knew things I did not know, and to that extent they were wiser than I. But gentlemen of the jury, the good craftsmen seem to me to have the same fault as the poets. Here we are. Each of them, because of his success at his craft, thought himself very wise in other most important pursuits. I'm going to read that again. Each of them, because of his success at his craft, thought himself very wise in other most important pursuits. I probably too often take shots at businessmen. But if you'll allow me, 
I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that I love businessmen and, and related to many and, 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 and so forth. I think one of the classic temptations of businessmen in our society is particularly because in our society their success, for some reason, is, tends to be honored above all others. It's a, it's a rather scary statement about our society that in general men, most of all, but now actually most everybody, tends to judge themselves by how well they're able to succeed, of all things, in business. As though that were the main thing where you know the metal of a man. And it's not. But we tend to think it is. And that is part of, I think, why they and we are very prone to think things like, well, I did real good in this. I must be pretty good. I must pretty much have things together. I must kind of, you know, know how to do things. I'm used to people coming to me and getting my advice. And you know what I think one of the things that Socrates, if he, if he thought the timing was, was right, he might have said something like this to such a businessman. Sir, you seem to have a pretty clear idea of what constitutes success in business. The person would say, yes, sir, I do. Socrates would say, would you please tell me this? What constitutes success in life? That question, ladies and gentlemen, is a question that Socrates loved to ask. He'd say, See, people have a very clear notion of what makes a good carpenter, of what makes a good doctor, of what makes a good poet. Would someone please tell me what it takes to be a good man? And the thing that most astounded Socrates is, people aren't even asking the question. They're not even asking the question as though they know enough knowing what they know. So I like to put it this way. What, what, what is Socrates' insight here? We could make a mistake here. The problem, often right now, students will say, so the problem is if you think you know everything. I say, no, that's not nearly subtle enough. I don't know more than one or two people that I've ever met that think they know everything. That's a very uncommon problem. It's very easy to say, oh, no, I know, I, mean, I know there's lots of things I don't know about. The key word here, ladies and gentlemen, is enough. Do we think we know enough? People don't think they know everything. But I present, ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, at the heart of the whole program here, is Socrates is trying to point out the vast majority of people walking on God's good earth think they know enough, and they don't. They don't know the answers to the most important questions, and they don't either know it or care. 
and it drove him crazy to see people living in that state. And he wanted to grab them and shake them. I, I honestly often think, when I think of Socrates along those lines, I think of our Lord. I think of our Lord when he would have walked the face of the earth. I just try to look through his eyes. Maybe it would have been in a marketplace where everyone's super busy just going about their business. And I just think of the, of the thought, if only they knew. Yea, if only they knew that they have no idea. And I tell you, that's what this is all about. Socrates wants to say to you, now I'm, I'm going to give you a special challenge here, especially as Christians. We have the answers fundamentally, we can say, to the most important questions. So I think we are in a particularly dangerous position. We can really think we know enough. And I'd like to give you the challenge. Just because we know, as it were, the catechism answers to some of the most important questions. That's a great grace. I don't mean to belittle it. But for goodness sake, is that enough? Does that mean we're wise? Does that mean we have comprehended what we must comprehend? Socrates is trying to say to us, there are certain key questions that we must have the answers to, and we don't. But the, far and away, the worst blindness is the blindness to our blindness. It's one thing to be a blind man. It's another thing to be a blind man and not know you're a blind man. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not trying to be pointed here, but I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you with me to realize we're not talking about the person sitting next to you right now. <laughs> and we're not talking about the people that voted for the wrong people in the last election that makes you just want to tear your hair out. We're not talking about all of them. We're talking about us here. All right, so what, what are we going to do if we have begun to realize what Socrates is suggesting to us here? What are we going to do? How might we set forth in the pursuit of wisdom? Let me just put it to you this way. One of the big takeaway points that I want to have for you here is that there's, there's two parts of wisdom. This is why Socrates wasn't lying. He, he was using a little poetic license to draw us to the truth, as a teacher can do. What he was calling wisdom there is the first key step. If we don't realize that there are key questions that we don't have the answer to, that we need to find the answer to, we will never become wise, period. I say it again. If you and I don't realize now, today, that there are key questions that we should have the answer to and that we don't have the answer to, we'll never become wise. And that's the first step. If we get over that hurdle, if we start to climb that mountain, then we can get to the gold. Then we can get to the thing that is the actual treasure beyond all price, beyond all cost, that we might actually be able to start to see those higher things. So wisdom for Socrates is two-part. But he made it sound as though the first part is the whole show because in his experience it's so rare 
and it is absolutely necessary to get to the second. Though the second is the payoff, the second is what life is about. Our life is not ultimately about knowing how little we know. It's ultimately about seeing those higher things that we were designed to see. But I've got something incredibly exciting to share with you. Here is truly something remarkable. The more that we go down this path, the more that we begin to see this truth. There was more to what Socrates said than first met our eyes. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, that in a sense, it's not just the first step to see how little you know, because in wisdom there is an amazing, utterly non-vicious, an amazing circularity between the first step and the second step. For what is the surest way to come to realize all the more clearly just how little we know? What is the surest way to realize just how little we know, to really see more clearly the type of thing that makes you say, yeah, I'm not wise. I really don't know that much. Who is the person that's in the best position to say that, ladies and gentlemen? Very well said. And what was said was, he who upon realizing some higher truth, upon seeing that, that very vision gives him the further vision of how much more there is to see that he hasn't seen. For how do we really realize just how little we know? The surest way to see just how little we know is to start to see the big picture, is to start to see the big stuff. So ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's something very exciting that I want to share with you. I have absolute confidence in what I'm about to say. It will always, always be the case that the more you come to see into the depth of reality, the more you will see just how much more beautiful there is yet to see. Always. We live in an age that is astoundingly blind to the beauty of truth, to the beauty of reality. We have not yet begun to see, and so we have not yet begun to see how much more there is to see. Do, do you see, ladies and gentlemen, you might have bumped into this in, in, in reading the great spiritual masters. If you experience this like I have, it can be rather annoying where at times it's a very parallel reality here where a great saint will say something like this, I am such a sinner. And you and I find ourselves saying, <laughs> you don't know nothing <laughs> about sin. Let me start to tell you about it. No, I mean, we're thinking they're off on some cloud somewhere where, woo, you know, sin to them. They're just not seeing it. We're going to fill them in on it. And you know what? They're like Socrates. When Socrates says, you shouldn't call me wise. He's seen too much to think that he's wise. Just like the saints have seen too much not to know how great a sinner they are. 
For if you've really seen that, you know sin. Ladies and gentlemen, they know sin. We don't. Socrates and others like him know the higher things, and maybe we don't. And we need to do something about that. So I'd like to make a couple of quick suggestions to, to you. And uh, I know that's, this is emotionally and psychologically uh, e- exhausting. But what might we do? Frankly, I think the good news is just beginning to realize the problem. For me, it's, it's just incredibly exciting. There's that moment of, okay, all, all right, I'm, I'm up for this. I, I, I can do this. All right, I'm, I'm willing to admit it. I'm not seeing I invite you, let's, let's take on the mantle of Socrates here. By the grace of God, let's try to do exactly what he did and open our eyes and realize in view of these amazing things that are there, we're going to start, even if we haven't quite yet seen enough to realize as clearly as we should how little we know, let's assume it. Let's assume there's fabulously important answers to these questions that we don't have. By the way, this is, this is so many things that we could, tangential things and things we, that are related to this. It's so great for parenting. I think so often we parents make the mistake of thinking that we need our children to think that we have all the answers. How often do our children come and answer, ask us a question where really it seems well, what we should have said is just, oh, that's a wonderful question. I don't know. I don't know. But we can find the answer to that one. And it's going to be a good one. But I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> that would teach our children something amazing. Rather than, oh, well, well, um, uh, and, then, and then we toss up some answer because we're not comfortable with not knowing. Ladies and gentlemen, it hurts to not know. And we let ourselves get into habits of not adverting to our own ignorance. We hate it to be pointed out, and that is one of the reasons they killed Socrates. Really? It's the reason. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, there's something deep inside us where we know we're made for vision. And when it's pointed out to us that we don't have it, we find that extremely difficult to deal with. So I I come back to the humility word. We, I suggest, should be praying. As Christians, we have so many tools at our disposal. We can do this Socrates thing. But we can begin together by praying to our good God to give us the humility to see where we stand to really see where we stand, to begin to understand how much we don't know. But imagine the joy where, though that hurts, the amazing fulfillment that comes at the end of the search if we are willing to seek for one prayer for sure that our Lord will answer, and he made this absolutely clear in his ministry. Lord, that I might see.
But if we don't know we're blind, we'll never say that prayer. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback, for an absolutely dynamite presentation. As I stood in the back with uh, James Blankenship, a fellow student at Christendom College, I said, I said to him, where else is this going on in the Catholic Church? And I put that to you, that I think we have a great gift tonight in Dr. Cutterback's presentation. It's certainly challenging. I think we have before us the perfect opportunity that I, I believe that God chooses us, I've said this before, for certain moments, he's placed us here. And certainly he's placed us here tonight in the context of our preparation for the nativity of God. And uh, I'll say it, as I've said it the last couple of weeks, and I'll say it again in the future, we have before us a few weeks, really, a few weeks of preparation for the nativity. How will we spend those few weeks to prepare ourselves for Christmas and I think much of what Dr. Cutterback talked about tonight was a matter of how we're going to approach life and how we're going to order our life to the most important things. And we can walk out of those doors right now and say, yeah, that made me feel good. I liked what he had to say. I'm glad he's on our team and not the other team. <laughs> or we can do something about it. And so I would challenge you. Yeah, I realize that over the next few weeks, over the next couple of months, there will be many parties to be invited to, many wonderful feasts to enjoy. But if we do not prepare ourselves for the feast of feasts, for the birth of Christ, then when that day comes, God will not be born in our life. And so as we prepare ourselves for next week coming together, I would say, hey, turn off your radios, prepare by fasting, by prayer, Get serious about your preparation for the nativity and put these things before you. This text, 10 pages long, you can read this probably two, three, four times before next week. And I would challenge you with that to make that the most important thing of your evenings and your preparation for the coming week. Okay. Over here okay. Now. Yeah, we got Answer. questions all over the place. I'm going to get my exercise tonight. So... Um, but before you ask your question, you have to listen to my rules, even though I know you guys rarely listen to them. <laughs> um, come on, Bob, give me my rules. Right, the, the question has to be one sentence. one sentence long. On the end of the... There's got to be a question mark. It has to do with the subject at hand. For the, and don't take my micro microphone away from me. For those watching online, please post your question. The same rules apply because last week I got a book over the email. So, and there was no question mark on the end. So tell us where you're writing in from and make your question to the point. And uh, if it's good, I might uh, put it to the professor here. There's an amazing parallel between the experience of Socrates and Christ. Is there any evidence that the Jewish people were aware of the arguments relating to Socrates and the Apology. That is, so I don't need to repeat the question, right? Because everyone's, everyone's heard that. Um, that is a great question. I, I cannot speak as a scholar with absolute knowledge on that, though my understanding is 
there was ignorance on both sides. In other words, that Socrates would not have known of a kind of wisdom tradition of the Hebrews, and that the Hebrews would not have known um, of the Greeks, meaning more specifically of, of, of this. So uh, it, it's, it's I, I, I just, in that context, I'll note um, one of the early fathers referred to it, how it seems that God was pleased to make a kind of another revelation to the Greeks, but isn't it inter- through the light of natural reason? But isn't it interesting how it wouldn't be until later that it comes together, and even throughout Christianity, some of these things were still being rediscovered really fast. It, one of the most fascinating things that why the 13th century when Thomas Aquinas lived was such a dramatic time is that certain key works of Aristotle that had been lost to the West for centuries resurfaced. And all the, the theologians realized this was a big deal and it, and it, was, a, it was a tumultuous time. So it's been interesting how these two have come together, but particularly in Thomas Aquinas is where, is where the two traditions really come together and just reach an amazing synthesis. Thank you. Thanks for your presentation. Oh, thank you. Um, my question was, um, are there any parallels that are worth making between um, the trial of Socrates and um, Galileo's experience with the Inquisition? And oh, I, 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 was, I was already anticipating the question was going to be between, because um, comparisons are often made with our Lord. And I thought that's what you were going to. Um, with comparisons with the trial of Galileo, I'm going to ask you, is there something further in your own mind? Well, the microphone just disappeared. So, um, uh, I, I, so I was thinking about what you had mentioned about um, faithful people, Christian people. Sometimes the trap is even greater for them to think, for us, you know, to think of uh, ourselves I, I see. as having all the answers. I, I, I see. To, so so the, que- the question was, is it, might there be a parallel with Galileo where Christians can be particularly prone to think that we already, that we maybe know more than we do, and sometimes that, that or be, to be too sure. You have a fine point there. I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, part of the tricky thing about it is that I think a lot of people actually uh, misunderstand the Galileo situation, where it's actually often not presented fairly to the church as to what exactly happened. Though I think, it, I, I, I would just say, I think you're thinking rightly that undoubtedly some of the things that went on there, well, I won't say undoubtedly, is likely that that would have gone much better had all those involved been more Socratic. And so I'm just going to say, you're thinking absolutely rightly. There's going to be a little dangerous, I think, to try to go further because we'd almost want to point out certain things to be fair to the church that they actually didn't say some of the things or do some of the things that people think they did to Galileo. But I'm just going to say, I think that's a great issue. We also have a talk coming up on Galileo's trial uh, later Perfect. on this year. Perfect. So. We have a, a, a message coming in online from our ICC satellite group in Michigan. Wow. Which, <laughs> All right. Um, and they're asking, how does the Socratic method as taught in modern curricula today compare with Socrates' actual method in seeking wisdom and truth? That's a very hard question because I'm not exactly, I mean, the term Socratic method is thrown around a lot. I think it's probably used a little promiscuously. So for me to try to compare it, it would be dangerous because I'm not exactly sure what I would be comparing. In other words, sometimes Socratic method simply means a kind of question and answer uh, approach of a professor. 
and, and, and that, I'd say, certainly might not be done the way that Socrates did. So I'd say, good question. Be, watch your pockets. When someone says Socratic method, look a little more closely. It might be the real deal. And I'd say, what, how do you know whether it's the real deal or not? Is it pretty clearly aimed with confidence towards coming to the truth? It's not just about raising endless questions. It needs to be geared towards coming to the truth, but at the same time with humility realizing we do need to look again and again and be willing to re-ask sometimes some of the same questions or question whether we do know something as well as we thought we did. Uh, you mentioned the wisdom literature and the, you know, a lot of parallels, it seems like. Uh, which came first? Because I thought I once heard that perhaps the Hebrews didn't like the who rejected it, thought it had too much of the Greeks in in it, and so. But I, I'm thinking that that's not the case. Well, the Hebrew wisdom literature comes before this, at least substantially, because King David, for instance, is is before this. So I think what you're thinking about is at the time of Saint Paul. You know, I might be wrong, that, that this would have been, well, they refer to the wisdom of the Greeks, and St. Paul refers to it as though this might be a problem, and so it's actually good that you raise this. Um, the, the Greeks seek wisdom, but then we have Christ as the stumbling block. Well, there's, there's no reason to take any of that as being negative about the philosophy itself, there's, I mean, really, I'd say what St. Paul was doing is pointing to those Greeks who didn't follow Socrates in this. I mean, it's, it's like many of us Christians were, we, we bear the name of Christ, but do we give a good representation at times to what Christ's own spirit is? So are many even kind of inheritors of the Greek wisdom, do they still have the spirit of Socrates where there is this kind of humility, or are they kind of full of a sense of their own knowledge? It seems to me that what St. Paul is referring to there is particularly Greeks who would have been too confident in their great philosophy and thus wouldn't be open to the wisdom of Christ. But there are certainly counterexamples to that. So the, again, the, the, ultimately these two things come together very, very nicely, but not always does it happen. Professor Cutterback, you and Socrates talked about the problem of um, people valuing wisdom, but at the same time uh, thinking they are wiser than they actually are, in a sense being somewhat arrogant. Uh, so things haven't changed much in 2,400 years. Right. What about the problem of people that today do not value wisdom at all? They're perfectly happy thinking that there is no value in, in any type of wisdom, and, and they're happy that way. It's not that they feel they, they have some, they just don't care for it. Right. A very important question. I would, um, I'm not disagreeing with something you said, but I'm going to challenge you on it by the way of trying to address the question. You said, and they're happy that way. And, and, and I would say, and, and they think they're happy, but they're not. Or they're trying to tell themselves that they're happy, as we all are prone to do. And so the good news, it's the great challenge of life. The good life is profoundly difficult and challenging. True happiness only comes when we respond to the greatness of our natures. Aristotle uses this great virtue, magnanimity, which literally means greatness of soul. The greatness of soul to see just how great the human calling is, particularly the call to become wise. 
it requires great courage, it requires great discipline and effort, and it's only in that that we will be happy. What about so many of us that settle for less? We're settling for the pot of porridge. So in a sense, you're raising the, the proverbial question. What about those? And, and the thing is, our culture encourages that. Our culture says to us, there isn't this something greater, so enjoy these lower things and tends to immerse us in these things. And so, I mean, apostolically, thinking of evangelizing, nature is on our side. Ultimately, people are not happy like that. And there can be that moment of grace where they're going to realize that. And what a great witness we can give where we just come. We don't have to hit people over the head with us. There is a higher wisdom. And if we live that way, I'm convinced that is the greatest witness. That person, they will say, has seen something. Surely he has. Surely she has. And I want to know what it is. You know, that is an amazing way to witness. And we can help people see that they are not seeing. This is what a great teacher needs to do. And you think of anything you can do to try to bring people to see that they are not seeing. Thanks for that question. Um, we've always heard when I, when I was younger about the Jews really didn't accept the Hellenization. Um, could you explain briefly what was the big hang-up? Because uh, obviously Christianity is kind of fused it together pretty well. Um, but the Jewish tradition was at the time. I know there's other issues with paganism and everything, but what was, what was it that, that their big hang-up, I guess, with, with the Hellenistic um, thought? Probably what I should do right now is practice what I preach and say I don't know. That would probably be the best answer, but I'll go out on a limb. <laughs> and, and say... I mean, here's the thing. I stand under corrections, and many others would be able to answer this question better. But I would just say, this, my understanding of the Jewish people, it's important to recognize this. One of the things God had to do with them is to get them to focus on him. And there was so much shenanigans going on all around of people who were not getting it straight. And he had to say, keep your eyes on me. I'm showing you where things are. Things out there are going to contaminate you. You need to keep focused on me. And I just suggest whether, whether part of that, I mean, there's some good things here in the Hellenic or Greek culture, but there certainly were plenty of problems. And it's hard to sort that out. It's easier later on to take their wisdom literature and say, okay, we're going to take that with us. But at the time where it kind of comes as a package deal and there's a lot of pagan practices that are problematic... That's my suggestion. I don't say that as a scholar. I say that as a suggestion. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>